Welcome to Mainstreaming Asian Americans. Hi, I'm Father Fred Vergara, Missionary for Asian American Ministries in the Episcopal Church. In this podcast, we move beyond the campaign to stop Asian hate towards full Asian life and living in America. No one wants to be marginalized. The hope is to be included as an integral part of mainstream American church and society. We do this by highlighting the struggles and triumphs of Americans of Asian descent. We also look at the joys of living in America while sharing the essence of cultures of Asian heritage. This podcast promises to be engaging, dynamic, and filled with life-changing perspectives. Join us as we journey together towards mainstreaming Asian Americans. Missionaries are the cream of the crop of the Christian faith. They can be likened to the elite Navy SEALs of the United States Armed Forces who are well-trained physically, mentally, and spiritually. Most missionaries, especially cross-cultural missionaries, genuinely forsake all that is known and familiar and are usually deployed to unknown territories where any series of possibility can happen, from war to famine, pestilence, risk of diseases, to attacks by wild animals. Missionaries have seen them all, and yes, they had experienced some of it, if not all. To this reality, of missionaries, we can attribute the letter of Paul to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 36. For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Yet in all their struggles and travails, they also experience the God who guides and guides. The fruit of missionary work is usually one that lasts and has significant impact in the region where it is that they have been sent through the gospel. In the Christian missionary enterprise of Asia, we can count the pioneering work of St. Thomas the Apostle in South India and the mission work of the early Nestorian Christians in China. This was also the case with the Christian mission in Korea. The first to arrive in was the Roman Catholic missionaries. Catholicism first came to Korea by way of books written by Jesuit missionaries in China, from China. Korean scholars would read these Chinese language texts obtained through contacts with Beijing. As in the case with all missionary work, it met with resistance. But while most rejected the ideas expressed, a few were intrigued. One particular group, the Namin or the Southerners, viewed Catholic ideas about moral development as a field of study. One of the fruits of this missionary work was Esther Park, born in 1876. She was the first Korean to practice Western medicine in the country. She also became a missionary. After receiving an education from the United States, she returned to Korea, where she helped more than 3,000 patients. When the epidemic of cholera broke out in Korea, she traveled all around the country, helping patients free of charge. She had been honored into the Korean Science and Technology Hall of Fame for her many achievements and service 
to the Korean nation. Another notable Korean was Maria Kim, born in 1891, the third child of Yung-bak Kim, who was an educational pioneer and avid churchgoer. Maria established an elementary school in their hometown. She was also a notable activist in the Korean independence movement during the Japanese colonial regime in Korea. She participated in multiple marches and activist activities, which eventually led to her arrest in 1919. She suffered torture and as a result had severe health problems. Eventually, she was sentenced to three years imprisonment for her leadership in the Korean Patriotic Women's Association. But due to health issues from torture, she was granted medical leave and with the help of American missionaries escaped to Shanghai. In Shanghai, she became representative of Huanghui province and enrolled in Nanjing Jinling College. In 1923, Maria Kim studied at Park College and the University of Chicago as a foreign exchange student, earning a master's degree and then moved to New York to study theology. In New York, she helped establish the Kyun Wahoo, a patriotic Korean association for women, along with fellow exchange students, Bak Indok, Wang Edok, among others. She was posthumously awarded Order of Independence Merit in 1992. Our guest to this podcast today is descendant of these two great Korean women of faith. Dr. Esther Kim is his great-grand-aunt, and Maria Kim is his great-grandmother. Our guest today is the Right Reverend Alin Shin, Sukfragan Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of New York. Was born in South Korea, Bishop Allen and his family moved to Washington, D.C. in 1972, where he attended Gonzaga College High School a Jesuit school for boys. He earned his bachelor's degree from Western from Eastern Michigan University in 1983, majoring in music vocal performance. He then spent four years in New York City working as a professional singer before taking up a position as a choir director at the Korean Episcopal Church in Chicago. Having gone through the discernment process in Chicago, Bishop Shin studied for his Master of Divinity degree at the General Theological Seminary in New York City, graduating in 1996. He was ordained to the diaconate in the Diocese of Chicago in June of that year, and to the priesthood in the Diocese of New York that December. Also in 1996, he was called as a curate to the Church of St. Mary the Virgin back in New York City where he remained there until 2001, while at the same time taking a position of assistant officer of the Episcopal Asian American Ministry at Episcopal Church Center, which he held until 1999 with Dr. Winston Ching, the first Asian American mission. After obtaining Master of Sacred Theology from General Theological Seminary, Bishop Allen went to England, where from 2002 to 2005, he pursued postgraduate studies in patristic studies at the University of Oxford. During the course of his studies, he also held the position of honorary assistant priest at All Saints Anglican Church in London. 
He then remained at the University of Oxford from 2005 to 2010 as fellow and chaplain at Kimball College. So in 2010, Allen returned to New York to take up the position of rector at the Episcopal Church of St. John in Huntington in the Diocese of Long Island. Then on December 7, 2013, he was elected Bishop Suffragan at the Episcopal Church of New York. His consecration was held at the historic Cathedral of St. John the Divine in Manhattan on May 17, 2014. He is the first Korean-American to occupy such a position in the Episcopal Church. Bishop Allen, welcome to our podcast, Mainstreaming Asian Americans. I know I have spoken about you, but tell us more about yourself uh, and also Clara, of course, uh, your beloved wife. Morning, Fred. Thank you for having me and thank you for this invitation and, and honor. Um, Clara is, um, we, Clara and I have been married for 30 years now, for over 30 years, we're in the 31st year now. Uh, we've met in Chicago uh, uh, while she was a student of um, organ. Uh, she was an organist um, at the, at the um, um, Chicago School of Music. And then um, uh, we married in 1991. And um, we've been um, having just wonderful life together but since then. She's been absolutely um, gracious, loving, and supportive spouse for me during this time. Uh, willing to uh, go uh, where God has called me and, and both of us, uh, which has not been easy for her. Uh, but uh, uh, I'm very, very deeply grateful for her support and courage. Thank you, Bishop. And uh, we usually say, behind every good man is a better woman. <laughs> now, uh, continuing with your uh, family background, your father, Hyung Jun, actually initiated the migration to the United States in 1972. Uh, he was also the head of psychiatry in a hospital in Korea and a soldier in the Korean army. What else do you remember about him and what impact uh, has he in your life? Well, you know, he's still alive. He's 94. So I'm, okay. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for um, oh, the wonderful gene that, that he has handed me down. I'm hoping uh, um, he is uh, a wise and brilliant man. He um, um, a, a very faithful. He was also the you know, first child and the first son of, of a family of 11 children. Uh, my grandmother had, my grandparents had 11 kids. My father was the eldest. And, um, and so he had a big responsibility in, in, the, in the culture, like Korean culture, as the first child and the first son. Um, he was a diligent student, a, sm a very brilliant student. Um, he won the um, uh, national um, 
won a few national um, awards to um, to study in the uh, in America uh, for uh, for his psychiatric medical and psychiatric training after he uh, 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 after the after his duty uh, military duty so he went came to actually United States uh, in Madison Wisconsin to study uh, to get the um, further medical training, residential training, as well as in psychiatric training there. And then he worked uh, for a little while in Evanston, Illinois. Um, and then oh, my, my, my mother was with him as well, but my parents then returned to Korea uh, in 1961. So, um, so he, he, he was a, quite a, a Person that I, that I I respect and admire very much. Bishop, you came to the United States uh, quite young, but did you experience some sort of uh, some sort of cultural shock when you first came to the well, U.S.? Of, of course, um, we all did. And, and just, you know, the the interesting thing about America, you know, in, in Korean. Um, uh, according to the Chinese character, meaning of the Chinese character, it means beautiful country, literally. Um, Yan, in many ways, was beautiful, but also in many ways, it's also very difficult uh, immigrating to a totally different culture at the, as a teenager at the time. I was, I was already 14. So it was quite a, quite a shock. Um, I knew very little English, almost none, and uh, but you know, um, being coming here with a not alone, but coming with a family makes makes a difference. Uh, you know, uh, and I think my, my younger siblings actually probably adjusted faster than I did. <laughs> uh, and, uh, uh, but you know, it was a shock for them too. It was a shock for my, my younger brother also. To land overnight, you know, it was not a, it was, we flew from from Seoul to uh, to uh, um, Seattle first. That was an entry port, and that's where we processed them. It's totally new culture, a new environment, uh, literally overnight after uh, whatever 15 hours of flight. So yes, it was a shock. <laughs> um, you know, you've experienced it yourself. Yeah. Halfway, yes, so. <laughs> certainly. Uh, you, uh, during those times and even today, you still have connection in Korea, right? You still maintain contacts with the Anglican Church in Korea and the Diocese of Seoul. Well, all that stuff really must very recent. Um, you know. Interestingly, my parents never never went back to Korea. They, mm -hmm. Since they came, since they immigrated to this country, they had never gone back. Um, never visited. My first visit back to Korea uh, was after about 20, I think it was 25, 27 years after we arrived. So, you know, 72 plus 20, 25 is 97. I think it was, I think it was 97 or 98 when I, 
for the first time uh, went back to Korea um, with really, um, you know, it was a kind of, I think it was an EAM uh, conference uh, that was held in, in, in Seoul, Korea, or in various parts of, of Asia. And, um, but so that was the first time I went back since, since, I, since my family came here. And that was also a shock too. It was, it was not, a, not a, in many ways it was wonderful, but in many ways not an easy trip. I don't have a lot of family connection there. All my um, cousins, my aunts and uncles, they're all immigrated to this country. Um, so I have some distant um, relatives, but you know I don't have any personal family connections there at any point. My next question, Bishop, maybe a little bit, uh, you know, bring back some uh, traumatic memories, but uh, it's important in terms of your struggle. So in 1991, your sister Jean passed away in a car accident. It of course was a traumatic experience, but it caused you to struggle with your Christian faith. Uh, how was that like? Uh, could explain it. Well, Losing your loved loved one is is difficult enough, but losing your younger sibling is a huge trauma, and it was a big trauma for my parents. You know, parents are not supposed to bury your own child, and my parents had to do that. Um, and I watched my my parents literally. Um, uh, I could just see the trauma. That they were experiencing. Uh, my father's hair turned literally um, white overnight. And my mother was was disoriented for about a year. She it was very 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 hard for that. But for me also, it was hard for me. It, um, you know, not just a emotional and and and. A, and in a psychological sense, but also spiritually. I, I had never questioned, I grew up, you know, my family is a, is a long Christian family, so faith is something that I never really questioned a whole lot. It's something that I just grew up in and accepted. For the first time, I, I had to confront it. For the first time, I had to really, I was really angry with God, and I didn't understand why something like this happened. My sister was 20 years old at the time. She was just really starting her own life. And so I struggled with God. I wrestled with God a lot during that time. Perhaps even came close to losing my faith uh, at that time. So it, it was that, it was, perhaps it was that struggle um, there was also a gift. Uh, I could have just walked away, but there was uh, it was also a, a, a gift. Um, the the gift, um, in, in in a sense, I, I came to realize that, that um, through that struggle, um, what I what I wanted to do with my life was not something that. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, 1991, your sister Jean passed away. Yeah. Suddenly, an accident. But in 1992, you discern the call for the ministry. Was this the result of your struggle? Are they related? Or uh, was the ambiguous situation moved you to discern whether God is calling you? Yes, uh, it was not a journey. I mean, of course, I didn't, I didn't begin that journey thinking that I wanted to be a priest. Uh, in the in the midst of all that struggle with God and, and, and faith, um, you know, I, I I began to really question also the you know, meaning of life and what do I want to do with my life? What is my life's mission? And it's a very critical time, a turning point in my life. And in that process, um, you know, I, I, I came to um, sort of reprioritize my life and, and discern what my primary values are and the purposes of my life. Um, and while in that process, I went to a, a, a sort of wise elderly priest friend in the, in the Diocese of Chicago, whom I, I respected. Um, and I had a conversation with him uh, about various things. And at the time, I, was, I thought maybe I wanted to be a social worker. Um, so that's something that I, I thought of doing. So I went to talk to him about it. And about an hour into the conversation, he said, he asked me, uh, Alan, have you ever thought of becoming a priest? I think you'll make a good priest. And, that is something that, you know, I hadn't quite seriously thought of. Um, I did think there was a brief moment in high school when I was in Jesuit high school that I thought of possibly being a priest, but it was a, it didn't last very long. Um, so I thought, well, I don't know. I, I didn't know what quite what to do with that. So I said, well, I don't know, but let me think about it. So, so I went back and um, I told uh, my wife and she kind of looked at me, gave me this troubled look and she said, an quizzical look and said, well, I'm not sure about that. Uh, but of course she also said, well, let me, I'll pray about it. And so, and then I went to my uh, priest at the time, uh, was Meredith Potter, who was a priest in the, of the Korean church there. I talked, I went and talked to her, told this whole story, and I said, well, what do you, what do you think? Um, and she, she just had this big smile on her face, and she said, Alan, I've been waiting for this for two years. Um, I think you would make a wonderful priest. Let us pray together, let's discern this together. That's how it all began. <laughs> but of course, before you, uh responded to the call for priesthood you you know serve in various positions and especially as a singer uh, you have a gift of music and you grew up and originally you actually wanted to become an opera singer i mean you could have had a lucrative future in that profession too but what changed your mind to choose you know the you know, from there to, to becoming a priest or are you still singing by the way in the opera no, I haven't sung in years. Um, I, 
Well, I, I don't know. I, I guess, I, I think when I left New York um, to go to Chicago and to take this job as a choir director, in a way, I think deep down, I kind of knew that, that um, I had to put behind that dream of becoming a, a you know, professional opera singer. Um, yeah, yeah, you, you're right. I mean, I, I could have made my living in music. I could have continued to do that in singing and choir directing and whatever else, uh, and, and perhaps teaching, etc. Um, but I also knew that my dream of becoming, you know, opera star, if you will, singing at the band, I know that's not going to happen. I, I, deep down, I knew that. I had to come to terms with that. So on some level, um, it was not it was not a dream that that was in the in the sort of um, forefront. You you hop from Chicago to New York, New York to Chicago, and then <laughs> yes. eventually you became a priest uh, and. Uh, you know, served in New York, but it was in New York that you decided to move to England with the intent to study right. in Oxford University. Uh, your intent was only to be there for three to four years. It turned out to be nine years. Right. Uh, what happened there? <laughs> and what did you like most in England that, that uh, you know, made you stay there for nine years? I, I I love England. I love I love my time in, in Oxford, and and it was very it was a really really difficult for my wife because she was really, you know, I went there I went there in, in, in this dreamy environment to study, so it was perfect, you know. And whereas my wife, you know, she didn't have that kind of purpose. She just came with me and. So she had to work um, um, a, a job that she didn't enjoy very much for a while. Uh, she had to live a, an immigrant life all over again. She, it was almost a starting, st starting a another new, another immigrant life for her, um, which was not easy for her. And then um, I guess, you know, I was, after four years, and I thought, okay, do I come back? Do I return to America, to the America, to America or not? And then uh, this opportunity came um, to be the chaplain of Kiva College, which is a very historic Anglo-Catholic uh, college um, in chapel in, in um, Oxford. Um, and it was an opportunity that I, I thought, you know, would be wonderful to experience. And, and because I also made had some wonderful friends, uh, it was a great environment. And also, it was time. Actually, what happened was that my wife, you know, um, was uh, first uh, wanted started to be an organist, and then when we came to New York, she uh, became a fashion designer. She studied fashion design, became a fashion designer for several years, and then just when his her, career was just about to take off, we moved to um, Oxford, uh, which is also very hard. Um, and so then, then, so when I got this job, it was her turn. She said, well, it's my turn to, to do what I want. 
to study. So she decided to study interior design at London College of Arts. So she she did. She got she did her master's in interior design, uh, um, and uh, um, uh, it was a so it was a so that actually made it for her made made the whole journey worthwhile because uh, she got to study and get her degree, and then she got to work. Um, there for a few years as well. So, um, you know, I I owe her a lot. I feel I feel every time I think about it, I do feel guilty. I, I do feel indebted to her deeply. Um, but also, also that also gave both of us an opportunity to really experience, um, for her to experience England, Oxford, and England, um, not as a place of just. Con- just struggle and, and challenge, but someplace that she could also um, accomplish something and, and enjoy. Well, that is good. Uh, works out well. But uh, so three to four years became nine years, and then you finally returned to New York uh, because you were offered uh, to be a rector of St. John's School, Paris, in Manhattan, yes. in our diocese of Long Island. <laughs> Uh, how did you how do you describe your life and ministry in that parish the context of our of the diocese of Long Island? Well, first of all, you know, I never thought I would end up on Long Island, <laughs> uh, but I did. Um, and you know, it's it's really interesting. You know, God has a just kind of funny sense sense of humor, I guess. Um, I, I didn't ever I never really considered Diocese Bass in Long Island at all in the, in the beginning when I was searching. Um, I was looking at New York. Uh, frankly, I was looking at California. Uh, my parents live in the Seattle area, and I thought that would be nice and close. My, my wife didn't want to go to Seattle because the weather is too much like England. She said, no, I cannot take another gray, cloudy weather. Um, so sunny California sounded great. But it never worked out, and and uh, Long Island, um, I don't know. Some somehow, I mean, this position was advertised and it came to my attention. Um, and you know, St. John's Huntington is is a historic parish. It's, it's, it's a long history, two hundred close to three hundred years, two seventy five. Founded by Samuel Seabury, uh, started by Samuel Seabury Jr. himself. Um, and uh, and so of course I never thought I would get a chance uh, as a minority person. I mean, this, you know, this uh, North Shore, you know, North Shore historic parish. Everyone would call a person of an Asian American as a rector. But but I thought, well, let's give it a try. Um, I'll give it a try, and I did. Um, and as it turned out, they ended up calling me. There's a wonderful community, um, you know, and, and I really wanted to be. When I was searching for for a position um, back in the in the Episcopal Church from England, it's not an easy task. You know, trying to find a, a job from overseas is, is almost impossible. And so I was looking for a p- place where where Clara and I actually were going to retire. <laughs> so we were looking at okay, this is my this is going to be my last position. 
and we're just gonna it this is it we're gonna retire from whatever job we go to that's it and so that's how i approached and of course huntington is a wonderful place to to retire you know what's what what is there not to like right uh, except that it's a community expensive but still it's a beautiful community and the church is a wonderful community it's a great community and i didn't realize at the time that it's, it's also a fairly uh, well-heeled parish in the Diocese of Long Island. I wasn't really, really looking at that at all. Um, but when I arrived, actually, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderfully um, urban feel. Uh, Huntington is an interesting place. It's not all kind of South Shore, Long Island kind of place. And it's just, there's an urban feel. It is a very mixed congregation. Um, the, the number of African Americans, Indian, um, the Asian members there, um, as well as you know, a demo economic demographic is pretty pretty wide, pretty diverse. Um, it's an interesting place um, and very active, socially active in terms of outreach ministry. Piece. And, um, you know, the youth ministry is wonderful. Um, it's a pretty, it's a great place, and I really enjoyed it. So, so Clara and I thought, okay, this is it. You know, we're going to retire here, hunker down. <laughs> Apparently, God had another thought. <laughs> now, Bishop Allen, let me have Hi. some bit of a humor here. I was sharing to someone that you are a first Korean American suffragan bishop of New York and 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 he said Fred are you you mean suffering bishop I said no suffragan bishop <laughs> now there are some in my audience who may not understand about some of that ter church terminology so <laughs> will you explain to them or to us uh, what is meant by suffragan bishop uh, what makes that different from diocesan bishop or assistant bishop for that matter <laughs> Well, the diocesan bishop is a jurisdictional bishop. He's the, he's the bishop who is in charge, is the all, you know, the, the buck stops at, at his or her desk. Diocesan bishop is the jurist, has the jurisdiction of entire diocese. Suffragan bishop comes, suff, the word suffragan comes from the Latin word suffraganus, which means to support. So suffragan bishop is a supporting bishop. Um, and in a way, you might call it suffragan bishop. Is 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 in a way an, ex, um, an extension of the diocesan bishop in terms of jurisdiction. Uh, suffragan bishop does not have a has has a jurisdiction over 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 oversight, but but the suffragan bishop still shares that um, a certain responsibilities, and, and um, so that's. That's the suffering bishop. Assistant bishop is, is somebody who's already a bishop who is then called by um, the diocesan bishop and 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 the uh, and with the approval of the standing committee of that diocese to 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 function as one of the bishops, an assistant bishop, and one of the bishops in, in the diocese. So the, the so the, the the big difference between I guess um, if I can point out suffragan and assistant difference is the suffragan is elected by the by the representative 
um, of the congregations in the diocese. So that's, which is to say that, that um, you know, in, in a sense, the, you know, to put it in lay terms, I guess, you know, there's, there's a, the, what, it, what that means is the big job security, that, that uh, the diocese, so, you know, Suffolk Commission cannot be asked to leave unless, you know, something where he or she does something very wrong. Assistant bishop is not. Assistant really, assistant bishop really serves at the pleasure of the diocese because the assistant bishop is not elected per se. Um, but um, is hired by the diocesan bishop with an approval or agreement with the standing committee. Thank you, Bishop. You uh, just clarified to many uh, suffragan bishop. It's not a suffering bishop, but it's supporting bishop. Uh, but the, the Diocese of New York is one large diocese. And of course, that position has tremendous responsibility. And in that current position of yours in the Diocese of New York, you have experienced uh, success in the ministry, particularly in the area of what you call church replanting. Church replanting. Uh, will you share to us what is replanting church and how it is different from church planting for that matter? And maybe you can cite some examples uh, so that others uh, can, can follow. <laughs> so it, it, I, I think it's all uh, it's an experiment I, I think it all comes under the under the whole umbrella of, the, of, of uh, church renewal uh, congregation renewal and and you can do it in various ways and one way um, that been much talked about is the church planting which is a really planting a whole new church called startup if you will, a whole new startup and and uh, a number of dances have have um, carried that out, and we have attempted that in our diocese, um, not, not not with much success at this point. Um, we were all ready to do this, and then the, the uh, COVID came, and then the, a lot of that had to put on hold. It's something that I would like to see happen still, um, but but in our diocese, you know, um, New York. New York City, for instance, is saturated with churches. Our diocese as a whole has actually a lot of churches. We have 185 churches. I believe Diocese of New York has the most number of churches of all the all the dioceses in the Episcopal Church. 185 in our geographic um, area. And, and Manhattan alone has 45 Episcopal churches. So that's a lot. So, so trying to start a whole new church, yet another new Episcopal church, is is on some level, um, you know, uh, well, I don't want to say that doesn't make sense, but it's a challenge. So, what we decided to do with okay, is it, are there churches that we can help renew by revitalize, by in a way what we would call replanting? What replanting means is is and this is that we've done it one example of that with success, which is St. Peter's Church, Episcopal Church in Chelsea, where uh, the congregation was declining, um, uh, you know, decreasing the membership, but also saddled with big, uh, fairly big camp uh, building. Um, so 
um, there was a priest um, uh, named Christian Lee who um, actually initially wanted to start a new church. And I told him, I said, well, yeah, but you know, there are 45 Episcopal churches. I don't know, I don't know, we need another Episcopal church on top of that. Um, but what, are, what do you think about helping replant and revitalize a, a church that has, a, that has that potential? And I pointed to Chelsea and she, she's um, prayed about it for, for, for a while, for close to a year, I think. And she came back and said, yeah, I would like to give it a try. And now, how does that work differently? Well, she, it was kind of a combination of revitalizing but planting. She, um, she gathered some new people, as well as a number of people from her former parish decided to join her as well. And so when she began um, at St. Peter's Church, uh, about 40 new members came with her. And so that's the replant. So it's injecting all new, new, new energy um, and new people into the old system. And that's a, is, is a, um, a lot of people say, well, that's not going to work. It'll never work. Well, um, yeah, you need to do that with a lot of care, a lot of discernment, and, and, and a lot of time. <laughs> it was not an easy, easy task. It was not an easy experiment. But Christine Lee was the right kind of priest leader to do that. She's a wonderful, wonderful pastor and leader. Um, and the, and uh, we spent almost close to a year, about eight months of, of, of really praying and discussing and talking with the, uh, the, the existing members, vestry leaders of St. Peter's that that you know and they discerned and in the end they also discerned that that is they would like that you know they met and spent time with christine to see if she was the right person to begin with and and then they discerned that that's the way to do it they wanted to do it so now the church is thriving church is doing really well that was about two and a half years ago two years ago i guess um they started so it's it's a um um, you know, it, it's not an experiment that you want to you want to do it lightly. It's, it's, it takes a lot of careful planning, a lot of conversation, prayer, and discernment, and and so that's something. And the reason we did that is because you know we have so many churches that actually need to be need to be revitalized. You know, so many churches. So are there churches that we can help revitalize by doing this, doing this way? And, and there are other, many other congregation renewal programs that we've tried and, and we're embarking on a massive, huge, huge project right now. Yeah, Is there a, a kind of demographic target of church plant replanting or kind of repeopling these declining churches uh, looking at the changing demographics, changing neighborhood, and, and so replanting focuses on the context uh, of, of new people? Well, I, I, I suppose so. I mean, it's not something, 
um, I mean, we, we're still learning, and we're still trying to try. We're still finding and learning, and 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 from this experience. Um, yes, I mean, I, I suppose this kind of work probably works best in a more concentrated urban areas. But, um, you know, um, it's probably not something that. In, not, not, not something that we would, we would try in a rural areas. So, you know, it could work in some, some, also some of the suburban contexts are kind of concentrated too. So it could work in places like that, but um, probably best in, in, the, in the urban population. Thank you, Bishop. Now we go to at least the two burning issues that affect our church uh, and our society. And I practically, and uh, most especially in New York City. I'm talking about COVID-19 pandemic and the increasing incident of Asian hate and racism against Asians in the United States. And you as a suffragan Bishop of New York has been involved in this particular ministry and advocacy. Let me start first with uh, the COVID pandemic. How does, how does this pandemic impacted your diocese? What happened, what's happening? What adjustments have you done in terms of responding to this, uh, you know, uh, darkness that we experience today? Um, it's been hard. It's been hard on everybody. That's for sure. We have our clergy leader, clergy and, and, and lay leaders um, uh, are experiencing burnout especially in this uh, yet another wave of Omicron. So that really sucked the energy out of a lot of people. So during this time, a number of, number of priests decided to retire or, or leave, leave the diocese and go to a different job. Um, but I also want to say that many people remained faithful and, and continue to uh, walk this journey with their people. So I think that's great. And, and everybody decide, make the decision um, you know, in different contexts according to their different needs and contexts. So something like, um, you know, a crisis, this, this kind of pandemic crisis actually, um, in a way, I, I think, um, uh, pushes uh, you know, everybody really in, into into a sort of unknown territories that, that we've actually probably were expecting you know like we were everybody you know even before COVID we were there was a lot of talk about okay church needs to change and what is the change and there was a lot of talk about that and and so this made it like more urgent uh, and people needed to be pushed into it and had no choice. So those who, who nimbly and quickly adopted to this uh, um, came out doing really well. Those who struggled and, and maybe continue to struggle are not doing very well. Um, so it's the mind is it's a a lot of it is is a, is a capacity to to adopt to new changing situations um, 
you know, as quickly as possible, as nimbly as possible. That's one thing. In terms of the, in terms of our churches and our diocese, you know, the thing is that um, you know, you talk about the, the diocese as a whole, but you know, diocese is, is not is really individual congregations and this it's people. That's the diocese. You know, that's it's not a the whole notion of, of the diocese some kind of other entity that is sitting up there and, and in a kind of but that doesn't exist that's a that's a, just a mindset um and that's that's really a figment of imagination there's you know we have bishop's staff who try to we try our best to, to support those congregations who are experiencing the change and our canon senior staff are, are extremely busy they're burning out they're actually not only burning other, some of them burned out uh, during this time because um, they're, you know, uh, you know, we have we have 65 positions open right now. Uh, so our canon to the trans canon for transition ministries is is you know like buried in that work. Um, this is unprecedented, I think, for for you know. Um, so we're trying our best to to come up to to help and support uh, and what we can. I think that you know the work needs to be done locally. You know, work needs to be done locally, and so the local congregations need to be um, need to find ways to adapt to their situation, and they're all different. Um, and and uh, we've tried to support by giving you know by um, giving them financial relief and financial support both um, we try to um, giving them relief in terms of tech support in where, where we could and 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 uh, other areas but actually the work actually needs to be done and on the local level we cannot you know uh, Five senior staff, five, five canon staff cannot go around 185 churches, setting up, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, internet where they don't have internet, that kind of stuff. It's just, it's not possible. Um, and so it all depends on, on on where you know how they're navigating. A lot of churches, I have to tell you, are, are doing very well. Uh, they've they've learned to adopt very quickly. Some churches actually are, are reporting they're growing. They're adding new members, new members into their congregation, which is a wonderful, wonderful news. Um, and some are, are very quick to find, figure out how to use this new technology as effectively um, and productively as possible. Um, that's another area. So, and, and, then, and I'm, I have to hand it to our clergy leaders who just have been incredible uh, pastors. Um, you know, many, many of our churches are, you know, a number of our churches have experienced many deaths during this time, uh, during COVID. And uh, that's a hard, that's a really hard task. Um, and, but they've done it and they've done it and they're doing that work. And so, um, Deeply, deeply grateful for, for all that, all, all that they do. But this is something we all have to get through together. 
So most of the the, <clears throat> the churches or the congregations now are uh, online and uh, uh, Zoom and uh, virtual. And uh, now this, of course, runs counter to our tradition of, uh, you know, uh, in-person hugging and uh, and having a, you know, Holy Communion, taking partaking the bread and wine and one cup and all that. Uh, a lot of transitions that happen. Uh, are there some uh, shift uh, in the new normal that uh, you think will continue? Uh, even hopefully, if you know we come back to uh, in person one day. Well, the the hybrid worship service is here to stay. So, and in fact, they, most of our, I think, just about everyone, I, I can only. Most of our churches have online capacity now. Maybe some don't, a few, very few, a handful, small congregations, but most of them do. And in the fall, probably over the summer, actually, in the fall, um, they were doing in-person and online hybrid. Now, most of them had, had to go back and online once again, but I assume by mid-February or early by March, they'll, they'll back, go back to in-person and, and online hybrid again. And that's, that's, the, that's here to stay. You, you, you cannot, it'll be foolish, it'll be foolish for any, any congregation to shut down their online capacity. It'll be really foolish. Um, the challenge, I think, is how do we how do you build community with online technology? Online technology, we're we are so used to using online technology as kind of, um, you know, virtual connection and information data gathering. Uh, but we don't think about how this can be used for community building. And that's because that's what church is about. Church is not an information. Church is a, is a body of, of people. So how do we do that? And that's going to be the big challenge as we as we go along. Um, and how can we build use? I think the most effective use of, the, of online technology is to build small groups. Use it to 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 build small groups. Make it as as interpersonal, interactive as possible in small groups. Um, because it, people have come, people have told me that actually sometimes in some instances. Being on Zoom with, with, with people actually make them much more um, uh, relatable, uh, uh, relational, more connectable, and, and they, they connect in a deeper way. And that's, um, and that's because it is a small group and, and you are actually be able to, um, to, to you know, talk to each other and have a deeper conversation just, just as, as you, could, you would on, in, in person. And, and so I, I think online technology is a wonderful technology for small group building and through which um, and a larger body can, can also be built out of that as well. Um, I, I think one of, the, uh, uh, one of the things also is, is, a, is, a, um, is, an, is a wonderful tool to, to use for any big issues that come come by um, for the church to, to address 
Um, and that's also a very good, uh, we, we've seen all this, you know, we've seen all this. We've seen, you know, Zoom conferences or webinars where, where hundreds and hundreds of people have logged in, right? Which would not have happened in person uh, because that the issue that was being handled was so important and significant. But at the same time, we also I've also heard that people in small groups building some really deep, deep relationships, um, um, uh, which they wouldn't otherwise in, in person. So, so those two is, is is kind of extreme examples, but that's that seems to be the um, the, the gift of, of online technology, and that's here to stay. In terms of the service in the Eucharist. We still believe in, in the bodily um, presence of Jesus Christ in the in the in the uh, sacrament. Uh, now there, there's ongoing debate about uh, you know the virtual blessing is still a wonderful is a blessing. Well, I, that is not how we understand how we understand um, blessing. I think that needs to be theologically fleshed out better and more debated. Um, and and a form of uh, of uh, sacramental blessing of body and body of bread and wine, um, in, in virtual virtual uh, blessing of the sacraments. It does just it's not going to work. It's not that's not how it works. It, it has to be bodily presence and in person, and and that I think as um maybe maybe i'm a much more traditionalist in that regard but um i i don't think we, i don't want my my initial instinct is that that is one boundary that i don't want to give way because because that is at the at the heart of what it means to be the body of christ in the christian community Thank you, Bishop. Uh, now we go to another uh, one of the most crucial and, uh, you know, uh, difficult and uh, heart-wrenching issue of our time is the racism against Asians. Most people understand racism only as a black and white issue. But we Asians, we know that uh, racism against Asians, we came back from history with the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, the anti-miscegenation laws against Filipinos in 1930s, the uh, uh, Japanese internment uh, after Second World War, and the post 9-11 uh, backlash against South Asians and, and all that. But, but COVID-19, also give way for another resurgence of racism which we call asian hate uh, if you remember in march 27 last year we held a gathering of episcopal asians and our allies to lament and protest against this resurgence of racism against asians and it was the biggest uh, event, uh, virtual event sponsored by Episcopal Asian American Ministries. There were like 600 who registered via Zoom and 16,000 who viewed it on Facebook Live. 
our presiding bishop was uh, give us a wonderful inspiring message and others and you also uh is one of those who gave testimonies uh, how asian hate affected you personally and as bishop of the church will you tell us more about your experience there and uh, what you hope to happen now and in the future about our uh, status here as asian americans in the united states The whole question of Asian American status of Asian Americans in the United States is something that that um, that I guess I've struggled with with many years, and I continue to do so, and I assume I will continue to do so, and many will continue to do so. Um, it is really unfortunate that that um, that such racial violence erupted during COVID. But as I suppose, you know, um, people people react to crisis differently. Some people, um, some people um, react and act, act and react um, with love and generosity, and some people act and react to, to this kind of crisis with um, fear and hatred. And so, that, so something like COVID crisis actually brings out the best and the worst in people because I, I think it's such an extreme situation. Um, in terms of specifically for, for Asian Americans, um, it's a very complex, you know, I think Asian Americans occupy a very complex place in, in the American society and culture and its history. Um, You know, yes, as you said, you know, the, the racism in this country has has you know been seen basically, um, that, you know, like, like um, sort of black-white issue. Um, but of course, you know, it, it, the whole notion of race itself is is a is a um, um, made up in a way or, or constructed is. Um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a human construction, um, and it's so so related to skin, uh, the color of your skin. So, and of course, you know, they're, they're, in terms of, of skin colors, are the various spectrum. So Asians fall in the middle somewhere, where they're caught in the middle, and I, I find that that either they're seen perpetually as foreigners or strangers on this land who do not belong here and that's often the mantra what we hear in the, in the violence against Asia is that you do not belong here uh, 
But at the same time, the Asians have been part of part of this country for for a long time, uh, for for you know hundreds of years. So, how do you reconcile the two? Um, you know, and I I think for me, you know, I during yeah, you know, I've been called many names in the, in, as I've grown grown up, but you know, it's just labels, you know, that that, that I I could deal with, but not. You know, during COVID, I, I I was very close to being physically attacked. I wasn't literally attacked, but it was very close to it. It was really scary. I never thought I would be that fearful. And then watching so many um, incidents where where Asian Americans are attacked and killed. Uh, uh, really is, is an alarming, alarming situation. And it's very sad. Um, and, you know, what, what, is, what is going on here? And, and, and why, why, is this, um, why is this kind of violence scapegoating happening uh, during this time? Um, and that, that's a hard one to understand for me. It's difficult to unwrap, you know, to deal with and unwrap. But I, I think one of the one of the things that, that and I, I think what it has done is as many among many Asian Americans, especially young people, I think, um, it raised the consciousness of what it means to be Asian um, in this country. The Asian consciousness, I think, is, is heightened among Asian American young people, especially. Um, and that's a, perhaps that's a good thing. I, I think actually not perhaps, but I think it is a good thing. I think it is something that, that Asian Americans we need to really grapple with. Uh, you know, what is, what is um, Asian American identity in this country? And it's a, it's a not an easy question to deal with. Um, so, I, you know, um, I think one of the things that need to happen is, is, is we will need to continue to educate ourselves. Asians themselves need to know the history of Asian Americans in this country. That's, a, that's very, very important. There's so many um, immigrants and most, you know, many, so many, you know, more Asians came during 60s and 70s and, and, and onwards than before. So, so there's recent, I wouldn't call it recent, but immigrants, Asians who immigrated to this country in, this, in the post-civil rights, if you will, really don't have an awareness of the history of Asian Americans in this country. They think that, they think that Asian Americans came, all Asian, Asians came to this country in the 60s and 70s. Now that ain't true. That clearly is not true. And Asians themselves don't know the history before that. And the thing is that once we once we come to this country, and this is something I've re, I've come to realize, and that's something you know the history of Asian Americans in this country is not something that I paid much attention to, and I knew much about. But once I began to learn, what I realized is that yes. Um, they may be these Asian Amer Asians who came to this country in the 19th century or even before, 
um, 18th century, they may be, you know, distant, distance away from from me in time, in time, but my life is, is actually deeply connected to their experience, their lives, because we are now, I am now, my, my life and my story is now grafted into American history. So my story cannot be disconnected from, I don't know, Afu, who started the first Chinese mission in 1872. I cannot, you can't, his story, which is not much known at all, there's much, you know, there's a lot of record, but whatever we know, his story and my story are not disconnected. They're not two different, unrelated in, in American history. And so that is what we have to capture. Um, you know, and because my my am now, my life and my story both grafted now into this tree called American history. Um, so I'm very much part of this large, diverse community of Asian Americans in the in this country now, but also in history. And that's something that Asians must do, be aware and raise that consciousness and learn about that. Why? Um, because it is about learning, learning this, the history of the system. Now, we are now part of a system that's been in place. You know, this the system of racism that's been in place since, since the very beginning uh, birth of this nation. And so we cannot escape that. Uh, it, it doesn't matter who you are, no one escapes from that. Um, so you have to learn that, educate yourself about that. And then, and then you know, begin, start speaking the truth and finding ways to have, have conversations about this painful, hard conversation. Um, and I think it's very important for especially Asian Americans to have conversations with with African Americans, Latino Americans, Native Indigenous American, Indigenous people, I think it's extremely important for for all those, those minority groups to start having a conversation of what it means to be to be a person of color in this country, in this historical system. So, uh, Bishop Allen, now um, Stop Asian Hate is the current uh, campaign uh, of our advocacy. But it's so, as you've said, we have been here for a long time and we are here to stay. Uh, is this now time for us to move beyond Stop Asian Hate and to express who we are uh, as an integral part of the mainstream American church and society? Uh, so that's an interesting question, and as far as I know, the only way you can you can overcome hate is through love. So first of all, I I don't want I yes uh, initially the, the this whole sort of um, pandemic of of, of anti Asian violence um, have cre have generated a lot of emotional reaction 
especially of fear and on some in some cases really uh, hate as well um, and but I, I think we can we need to overcome that and we need to overcome that by by positive energy of, of love and that's the only way I know um, and so the way to do that actually I think is is first of all um, uh, listen to one another um, and listening carefully with with stories about stories um, and our own stories, my own story. Sometimes I don't. We don't even listen to um, our own stories, but listen to other sto stories of others' um, struggle. And also, we need to tell our stories um, the, the, of, of struggles and and the. Um, and I, I think that's one place to start. The other is is really in doing so in the process across differences, different cultures. Um, I think that's that's very very important. We need to build uh, communities. We need to build, rebuild, if you will, if you rebuild our communities around us. And that means that we need to re rebuild our relationship with other people of color, African Americans especially, um, but you know, Native Indigenous people, Latino Americans, and, and others. And we need to build relationships amongst ourselves. I and mean, Asian Americans are a diverse group uh, of, of many different cultures and languages. It's not a monolithic group at all. Um, and yet we don't talk to each other. We don't, we don't listen to our own stories. And the other is also, also um, you know, listen to and enter into conversation with, with um, white mainstream um, Americans. Um, you know, and, and, and that's the only way I, I think I know how. And I think Asians on some level are well, well situated, if you will, um, to do that work. Because you know the yes, being in the middle uh, makes us invisible on some level, and in some ways, and we're often called invisible Americans. But on the other hand, being in the middle also allows us to be the bridge builders, and we can build a build. We can be that uh, uh, the, the 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 catalyst for bridge building across our different differences and different cultures. Um, and and we can we start that i think we need to start that by within our own community uh, i think we need to start to build our you know diverse asian american community you know there are a lot of asians don't know the stories of one another um, so that's i think that's one thing that's very very important um, and and i think it is time to to i don't want to say move beyond because because obviously you know the, the the violence against Asians will perhaps continue for a while but the thing the thing is is that it, it is also swept up in, in a very a lot of other violence as well I mean America right now is such a violent country there's so much violence um, that that um, it's hard to say you know um, anti-Asian violence is the only violence we need to address. And it's really hard to disconnect anything like that from the, all this violence that's going on. So 
um, it's, it's not an easy, easy thing, but I, I don't want to say we want to get over it. I just, you don't get over it. And I don't want to say we want to move beyond it. I think, I think we need to address it. And the only way to address it is not react out of fear and hatred of ourselves, but uh, act actually with love and patience um, and discernment and, and listening to, to, to others. Thank you, Bishop. So uh, love being an antidote to racism and violence, as Martin Luther King Jr. once said, darkness cannot overcome darkness, only light can. And hatred cannot overcome hatred, only love can. Now we'll move to uh, my final question, Bishop, uh, since uh, we're talking about you as the first Korean American Bishop in the Episcopal Church. The Episcopal Church, which is church-wide, we are present in about 17 countries in the world. We are a global church, not just a national church. And in New York, you have initiated or an innovative program called Episcopal Futures. And I think you happen to be the coordinator uh, or chair of this program. Now, can you tell us more about this in terms of, you know, all this thing that we have talked about, the redevelopment, uh, the renewal, uh, the revival, and the revitalization of the church that has been with us for quite some time, the need for that. Thank you. Um, Episcopal Futures, I'm, I'm not the coordinator. Uh, I oversee, it's, uh, it's under my oversight of many different um, uh, ministries in the diocese, but an, an important one because it's a, it's a, um, uh, uh, a big project. It's a huge, huge project. So uh, in, the, in May of 2020, right in the midst of, of COVID, um, you know, everything had to stop, uh, especially in congregational revitalization and renewal projects. Um, you know, um, all, a lot of that stuff had to just simply stop for, for the time being. And so the other uh, group of people um, and I, I got together and decided, well, what can we do? We started brainstorming. Is there something we need to do still um, and what do we need to do to get things ready once the COVID is over that we can launch and can get this going? Because we didn't want to stop that energy. Um, and in the, in the, what came out of that uh, many conversations, like weekly conversations, literally, um, was the um, uh, this Episcopal Futures. So uh, we noticed that, that Lillian Dahlman um, has this program called the Congregational uh, transformational congregation initiative or something like that and 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 it's a, it's a really grant or grants grants for congregational renewal um you know across all denominations not just episcopal and uh, and grant size are very varied from you know hundred thousand to to up to a million dollars over five years and we decided to go for it all, all out we said we need what we need is a, is a comprehensive Congregational renewal program um, uh, that that we design and we implement and, and experiment and, and encourage 
congregations to participate. The three it is is um, is founded on three principles. One is first is collaboration. We notice that parishes actually are siloed and they don't talk to each other. Um, they don't relate to whole a lot, even though they're just five five miles down the road. They don't know each other. Oftentimes, they're in competition with each other, trying to you know <laughs> steal each other's sheep, for 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 example. And that's just not helpful at all. That's very, very dysfunctional. So we decided, okay, collaboration is going to be a found one very important principle and 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 value. Um, the other is is the um, is the um, uh, capacity to capacity uh, adaptive capacity, uh, adaptive leadership capacity. Uh, especially, it was very clear with COVID. People needed to adopt very quickly, and that became very, very important. And it was, of, of course, you know, the talk of the talk of the town, if you will, during that time. How do we adopt? Um, and churches are, are are very bad at it; have always been bad at it. Um, but churches churches have adopted, meaning that churches have changed. How do we how do we adopt to the changing circumstances and changes and challenges that come about? So learning, getting that adoptive leadership skills, especially as clergy and church lay leaders is critically important, we recognized. And the third, <laughs> third portion is, is that, um, is a discernment process. Um, like, you know, as Episcopalians, we, we, uh, we hold sort of spiritual um, prayerful discernment as very important aspect of our tradition. And this is the part where, where, where sort of our Anglican ethos, Anglican traditions come in. Um, it, it, is, it is about community coming together, discern together, praying together, um, learning to pray together, learning to study scripture together, all of that stuff. Um, so that those three are three um, principles for, for, for this program. And what we've done is that uh, the core of the of, of this project is developing um, what we call it curriculums for learning communities. So we pair, um, you know, three, but maybe about three congregations together as a commu learning community, and they work together. They don't work on their own by themselves. They work together. Uh, and and uh, uh, and what it you know all these these skills and, and learning new skills um, and and talking about how to revitalize their congreg their their congregations and their ministries and so we we are we are uh, we have we have developed um, the first several the first couple of phases of learning learning um, communities curriculum now uh, we're ready to launch on february 1st um next actually tomorrow <laughs> um and so this has been in the works for for a year we've been working at developing this and that's because that is the core of what we're doing but at the same time we also want to want to um add to it, the community learning congregations are formed as a community, uh, either by affinity groups, 
or by differences. So, so that where churches maybe maybe put together because they're so different, um, you know, and and or churches may come together because they're there's they have similar concerns. So all of that very different, uh, diverse um, configurations, and they um, and and hopefully these there are five clergy plus five lay leaders are required to participate and so and we also we also required one of the lay participants must be a young adult um you know under 35. so so that makes that it uh uh i think it you know that makes it really interesting uh and 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 we also said you know that young person doesn't need to be uh, your church member. It can be somebody who is in your community, who has who has an interest in your church, who want to see. You know, I mean, we've we've really opened it up. Um, and the and the and the hopefully the result is that these these leaders come together. They learn to work together across their parishes, across different churches. And learn from each other. Learn together what it means to be church. And then, out of that, each each congregation will come up with their own project. So the leaders will come out with a project they want to experiment. And so it can be small, whatever it is they want to do. And then um, they'll continue to then then build on that skill and continue to be able to do this work on their own. That's the whole idea. It is not, um, you know, it's really teaching them whole new paradigm um, and, and, and new skills. Thank you, Bishop, uh, for what you do and all you do. Our best wishes for the Anglican futures. Uh, and hopefully Thank this you. will be a, a pilot, uh, a pattern to other dioceses as well. Thank you. And uh, we wish you about that. So, um, our podcast is named Mainstreaming Asian Americans. Is there anything else you wish to add before uh, I made the conclusion, concluding remarks? No, I, I don't not. Thank you so much. Thank you, Fred, for uh, Father Vergara, for your invitation. And thank you for this ministry. Um, I know you are, you are kind of in the last leg of your, your, minist your ministry as the as the officer of the Episcopal um, Asian American Ministry, but I know that I know that you will not rest, and I know you're not going to retire. Um, you will have actually uh, perhaps more important work to do, and maybe this is part of that work. And and all the best, and thank you for asking me to be part of this. Thank you, Bishop, for our friendship and for all that you do. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's Bishop Alan Shin. Suffragan Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of New York and first Korean American Bishop in the entire Episcopal Church, making a great difference in the life and work, not only of the Episcopal Church, but with American society and church in general. So ladies and gentlemen, stop Asian hate. We Asian Americans are here to stay and we will be part of the whole mainstream American life and work. 
Thank you so much for listening to our podcast, Mainstreaming Asian Americans.